And so the fact that, you know, Centria as a whole, Centria as a company, is really moving to the more compassionate care. And I felt, I felt more belonging. And I felt like I'm really in the right place to lead. Each day across the country, there are thousands of incredible Centria team members working to better the lives of autistic individuals. We will be highlighting the journey of these remarkable people and getting their unique perspective on how they stay connected to the mission in their positions. And then I'll connect their story to a principle in behavior analysis to further illuminate the application of our science. We're your hosts. I'm Timothy Yeager. And I'm Lisa Cunningham. And this is the Do Wonders Podcast. Welcome, Katrina. It's good to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Timothy. It's good to have that opportunity with you, too. Of course. So tell me more about Katrina. I, I, we've known each other for a while now. Um, what's Katrina outside of Centria, before Centria? Like what's, what's your journey been like to, to this point? Oh, outside of Centria. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> it's been a long journey for me. Uh, so I was born and raised in the Philippines. And I immigrated to the U.S. Um, 2009. I have to really rack my brain to remember that. So I, I immigrated here in 2009. Huge culture shock. <laughs> um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I have to be in a field where I work with kids. Um, I came to the U.S. with a psychology degree from a university back in the Philippines, and uh, I saw this posting as a, you know, work with kids, become a behavior technician, and uh, I applied, and I got the job, and I reflected, and I knew that I wanted to grow within the field. Um, I was able to use a lot of my strengths um, as a, you know, 19-year-old behavior technician. And I had to do a lot of research on how I can get there, just knowing that my degree is from another country. I wasn't sure if I was, what the journey is going to look like, um, but I was able to get my master's, pass my BCBA, and here I am now. Wow. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the, about your, uh, uh, about immigrating? Like, sure. What brought that about? Like, what, what was, what was your, your drive to come here? My mom, um, we're, we're a family of immigrants. So my mom's side of the family, um, particularly my grandma immigrated to the U S uh, particularly in Los Angeles, to just build a life for herself. Um, and my uncle and my mom decided to join her. Um, and so when I was in college, my mom told me, hey, I want to process your papers. Um, I think you have a brighter future here. And I would like you to move with me um, and live in California after you graduate college. And in the Philippines, you know, 
we are we have heavy heavy Western influence there, and so the thought of immigrating to the U.S. or Canada that's like the ultimate dream for a lot of Filipinos. So mm. when my mom told me that it, this could actually be a reality for me, I was very excited, but also sad to leave my friends, my family, who I've really grown up with. So yeah, so I I moved to California in 2009 and I was very culture shocked, like, I remember the first thing I noticed was how organized the roads are and how people (laughs) actually follow the rules when driving. And that's Um, in Los Angeles, which is not necessarily like the, the ideal of traffic. Oh yeah. I, I, I found it very impressive. Like I was like, wow, there's all the stop stop lights are working. Right. Um, People are actually obeying where they're supposed to go. Um, nobody's honking at each other. Uh, where in the Philippines, you honk at other drivers, not because you're angry at them, but it's a form of communication. Um, and so when I immigrated, I, that was the first thing I noticed is how organized Los Angeles was. Um, and then there's some cultural, you know, uh, adjustments as well. I prepped myself in um, trying to mirror like a valley girl accent. So when mm. I was in college, I I was watching Laguna Beach and the OC. I don't know if you know those shows. Unfortunately, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I would mimic how they say things. Um, so I was able to mirror that accent when by the time I I immigrated to the US and that helped me, you know, build some friendships and connections because it felt very lonely and isolating at first. So mm. um I eventually made friends and uh you know, I loved being a behavior technician as well. And yeah, I I uh now I I feel like I I lost some of my um, ability to speak the dialects that I used to speak mm. because now English has become my primary language. Mm. Um, you spoke English while you're in the Philippines. Yes, yeah, so I was Fire. very lucky to have attended really, you know, good schools. Um, we were taught how to speak Tagalog. Uh, English and two other dialects, um, like local dialects. So when I had already immigrated here, I knew how to uh, speak and write and communicate in English. I just had to really customize my accent <laughs> to my environment. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Man, what a journey. I uh, can't imagine how hard that would have been. Um, I packed my family up and moved from a small little rural uh, city in California to to New York City and and found that incredibly overwhelming and uh, scary um, to move across the entire, you know, world right. um, at such a young age. Um, that's a, um, impressive. And I think it probably aligns with some of the things I've started to know about you of like leaning in and uh, um, so I think it probably a string that we can connect there across a lot of the decisions that you made. 
Um, all right. So yeah. technician. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't at Centria, right? That was at a, a, a different company. At another company. Yes. Yeah. Um, what was your, what's your journey from LA mm-hmm. as a technician to somehow Centria and Las Vegas um, as a BCBA? What's that? What, you know, what, what are the steps yeah. in between there that? So I started, so I, I became a behavior technician, right? And then in a company that's no longer around, um, ABA was, I haven't heard of ABA, uh, mm-hmm. even, even if I held a psychology group, psychology degree, I never heard of that science before. I may have forgotten when I was in a class, who knows? Um, For but sure. I was very curious, um, I think ABA was very young back then, even in California. Um, I, you know, I worked with clients in um, primarily in home. I remember, uh, I remember being assigned to an eighteen-year-old client who, I'm, and mm-hmm. Timothy, you've seen me. I'm five two on yeah. a good day. Yeah, really, I'm five one, but this client is humongous and um i did not know what to do i didn't have the right supports back then and i remember getting hurt at work where this client actually threw a table at me and landed on my foot and i had this intense feeling of like I can't show like I I can't show my supervisor that that affected me, and so I didn't really tell anyone for the longest time, um, because of that intense feelings of like I can do this, I should be able to do this. I don't want to inconvenience people, or you know, our staffing department to find another technician for this client. So I really pushed through. Um, I know now that that wasn't the best decision. Um, eventually I did have to come off that client that I think to this day, that was probably the hardest day, uh, because I came home just crying, not knowing what to do. And ironically, that was also the day where I, I, it was very clear to me that I wanted to grow in the field Mm. (laughs) and, um, I wanted to serve, you know, more clients and to grow my skills to become a supervisor. So um, I went to, you know, I went to National University. I finished my my coursework within a year and a half, and then I became um, a BCBA after passing the exam, um, and then I became like a lead supervisor. Uh, and then when my partner and I decided, Hey, I think, you know, it's probably time to talk about having kids. I looked online to see for any opportunities. I, I don't know if you knew this, but I saw the century posting off of a Facebook, Mm. (laughs) of a Facebook, um, uh, posting. Uh, Yeah. And it was, I think the way it was presented is work remotely as a BCBA. We have tropical vacation and it sounded (laughs) scammy to be honest. It didn't, it didn't look real, like a real Mm -hmm. thing. 
But I, you know, I, I, my curiosity has peaked and I was like, you know what? I've never heard of a remote BCBA position before. This may work with our, you know, like now we're trying to expand the family. Um, so I interviewed and I got the position and I, I chose to leave uh, the company that I was with for seven years. Um, mm. And that wasn't of uh easy transition either because you know it became a really tight-knit community um but they they understood you know i i still keep in touch with um, my colleagues from that company um and i decided to you know to join centria as a remote uh bcba under kiara binninger and it was it was great it was a fun like tight knit remote, like PNW remote um, clinicians. And Kiara, I think it was season one, episode eight uh, on the podcast where I, I got to talk with her. Um, what a great story. And um, I think there's one point I want to dig in there as a technician yeah. working with the client that you wanted to help and you couldn't help. Um, you know, I think this is probably a really broad brush stroke for but the, for, for the most part, we are an empathetic group of people. Um, and um, I've been learning a lot more about uh, the difference between empathy and compassion. Um, and some of the challenges that that we feel when we just feel empathy and we're not able to act on that empathy. Uh, like compassion is like the action associated with empathy. Um, as someone who wants to help but can't help, that puts you in a very difficult position. Um, and what I, what I like about your story is that that sounds like it puts you in a position to figure out what do you need to do to improve your skills, to be able to help. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, fast forward a few years, um, as a clinical director, um, within a market where we're rolling out, you know, a more effective way to be compassionate and supportive of, that client, right? Like that, that 18 year old client um, seemed that they could have benefited from practical functional assessment, skills-based treatment. And thinking about to you as a tech, you probably could have benefited from like that approach as well. Um, big, big time. Yeah. Yes. What is that? Like, what does this shift for us as an organization like mean to you then knowing that that's the journey that you've been in and like, um, we're now in a much different place to be able to help clients yeah. like that in a more safe yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I feel very proud to work, you know, in to be a part of Centria because of that initiative. The PFA compassionate care SBT approach is just safer. It's just a safer approach for everyone. As a regional clinical director, I do not want our technicians to be in the same environment as as I experienced when I was 19 years old. I didn't feel like I had the support or even the voice to tell my supervisor, I do not feel safe. I do not feel like I'm the right fit for the role because of my strong desire to just make this work and my strong desire to not inconvenience other people. And so part of 
my efforts is really connecting one-on-one with our field behavior technicians because that is one of the things that I really want them to feel supported in. You have a voice. You are an integral part of our of our team and you know the client best even better than your supervisor. And so please tell us we want to know your ideas. We want to collaborate. And you talk to whoever you feel the most comfortable to talk to. And I want to credit, you know, my AVP Janelle because she has cultivated that culture of just really strong collaboration and encouraging people to talk to each other mm. um, and really trying to be solution focused. So going back to SBT, it aligns to all of that. Um, I want to give out a shout out to one of my BCBs, Heather Welch. She actually invited Hillary Laney to be a guest speaker um, for her BT Huddle series that just happened on Monday. Mm. Uh, It was at, I believe, 8 p.m. Pacific time. And Hillary, she told me she told me she she agreed to it, not knowing that it was going to be 11 p.m. Eastern. I I was shocked that she agreed to it. But also at the same time, it's like, well, Hillary is very passionate about this. So I know that she is so willing to share her knowledge and experience to whoever who wants to listen. Um, Behavior technicians got to ask questions to Hillary Mm -hmm. and it was, and Hillary was also very, um, she shared her vulnerable story to a group of, you know, behavior technicians who she doesn't know um, via Zoom. And that created a really great conversation. So I am just really lucky, I think, to be a part of the team Um because we we do try to we put in so much efforts into getting everyone on board with the SBT and PFA approach, including our behavior technicians. So take a moment, reflect back to like this first time you're alone with a client that's bigger than you and and you don't know how to help. Um, I can like when I think about that, I think about like just uh, this overwhelming desire to help, mm-hmm. you know but like mixed with like fear, um, uh, worry that I can't help or they make a mistake. Um, and one thing that I find incredibly freeing about the approach that we're rolling out, and especially around these foundational plans, like this universal protocol is that whenever in doubt, get the client to HRE and here are the things that you can do. Yeah. Like it's, not every moment is a moment to like intervene. Not every moment is a moment to battle. In fact, most moments aren't. Um, but even as a supervising clinician or director, you know, I've been put in situations where I like, can you come help me with this client? I, I really don't know like what the next step is or what I should be doing. And like, that's a very stressful situation to like come in and like act as if you have the answers. Yeah. It's a much more freeing expectation to know that like, Let's just ensure that we're safe. Right. And then let's figure this out together. Um, and elevating that technician's voice because it's their lived experience. They're the ones there. Um, 
Yeah. And I think, you know, reflecting on this, um, I have, I think when I was listening to Hillary share her experience of how, how her journey looks like until she found, you know, uh, the Hanley approach is I could literally just copy paste it. And it's very similar to my story. Mm. Um, when I was a behavior technician, I have done, looking back, like just done and also uh, observed harmful traditional ABA practices too. Um, And it never felt like it always felt uneasy to me every time I was directed to do a procedure that didn't feel right in my heart. I didn't have the words back then. Um, I even thought about leaving the field altogether. I felt like I must not be strong enough. I must not Mm. have the thick skin to actually be successful in the field until I enrolled in, um, in the, in the Hanley training. Mm. And while I was, watching the video, I just felt not just seen, but also like understood, like I wasn't the only one feeling this um, because I always thought of myself as being too soft because Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't really follow through with an extinction procedure. Right. So um, yeah, it, for a long time, my values felt so misaligned with how, traditional ABA practices are usually done. And, um, and so the fact that, you know, Century as a whole, Century as a company is really moving to the more compassionate care. And I felt, I felt more belonging. Um, and I felt like I'm really in the right place um, to lead. I'm going to take this conversation down a, a path that I don't typically go down. So we can always back out of this if you if okay. you want. Um, I've uh, uh, I've never known you to be a person that didn't have a voice. I've always felt that like when we've talked and and how you've approached our conversations that um, you've done a really good job in advocating and communicating. But what I'm hearing across your journey is that, that, that like in development that that hasn't always been the case, right? So I think about like you as a tech not willing to have a voice or I think about you as a, an immigrant coming and just wanting to fit in and, and not like maybe having a voice in that way. Like what, what's the point or like what, what's this process been like to like from that to, to now who I am genuinely talking to one of, you know, a strong leader within our organization that has a voice. Um, what's that journey been like for you? Uncomfortable. <laughs> mm. Um, to me, it's a it's a constant balance of you know I whenever I talk to someone, it's really important for me to you know for them to be an HRE as well. However, mm-hmm. in my role, there will be uncomfortable conversations. I have had to muster up strength and mm-hmm. pump myself up every time I have to go in in a conversation where I know that there's going to be differences in opinion, 
whether that's with a parent or with a technician or with a BCBA or with our leadership team, um, it is not the most comfortable for me to a place to be in. But I also know that if I stay in my comfort zone, I'm not going to grow. Um, I'm glad that you think that I, you know, that you find me as someone who, you know, voices out my thoughts and opinions on things, but it has been uncomfortable getting to that place. Um, I've had to really challenge myself um, in putting myself in situations where I will have to confront that fear of not being liked. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I remember when I first became RCD, I scheduled like disciplinary action meetings back to back to back. It's almost like Mm. I just have to dive in. Um, I have to confront this. I have to practice. I cannot avoid being uncomfortable because bad things happen when a leader continues to be avoidant of the things Mm -hmm. that needs to happen. Um, so yeah, so I, I see a lot of growth in those areas for me. Um, but it, I think the perfect word to describe it is it was an uncomfortable journey and it still is sometimes. I find it very uncomfortable for me, um, as well. I, I, uh, um, you know, it's interesting you you reference HRE in this conversation. Um, difficult conversations are like effective um when they come from a place um uh, of relationship right and and generally like aligning that to our care model that we're rolling out like it starts with relationship and then we put our clients into uncomfortable positions um or situations i should say as as they grow and and work through things and and similar to to our approach as a leader um relationship matters um, and then from there, you, you have to put people in, you get into situations that are uncomfortable and yeah. that's where the growth, that's where the growth happens for both people. And, and you're right on the money. Avoiding thing is avoiding is not kind and avoiding is, uh, just putting off a problem to grow and fester and, and, uh, um, it only becomes harder. Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to add too, I think, um, before, I think when we were first putting together the Do Wonders framework, uh, Mm -hmm. part of that process was getting into the conversation of client aspiration. Mm -hmm. And I remember having this realization that, you know, our clinicians not only need training, but practice in having these conversations because they can be difficult. Um, For us to help our, you know, our clients really, truly get to a place of them feeling safe, of dreaming about, mm-hmm. you know, big dreams for their child, it takes a lot of just vulnerability. And if our clinicians don't get practice, you know, having those conversations, we, we won't get to the actual aspiration because a lot of our clients you know like the when the parents you know and i 
I don't mean to overgeneralize, but you know, they they have a child um, with an autism diagnosis right off the bat. Even you know, evaluation, right? They fall on this scale of you know compared to the neurotypical peers. Mm-hmm. They are constantly reminded of their child's limitations. And for them, you know, if we come in and say, you know, what are your dreams and uh, your dreams for your child? What are your aspirations? They need to feel like they have the permission to even dream big without feeling foolish. Um, And so I think when it comes to client aspiration model, like it, it may happen in one conversation, it could happen in like multiple conversation with the parents. And I think when we approach it in a way of like, it's okay, like we we can we can dream big for your for your child, that could take some adjustments from the parent side as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting in uncomfortable conversations um, that often uh, have silence mm-hmm. in them. Right. And allowing space for that, um, I think is often a place where I, I find that like, uh, aversive. Right. And I, yeah. I can imagine our clinicians feel the same way. Oh yeah. What's a good day for, uh, for you as a clinical director? Good day. Um, that's a really good question. You know, I, I have mostly good days than not so good days, I want to say. I am again, I'm very lucky to be working with a strong group of clinicians and leadership team. I think a good day for me would be, you know, waking up, um, waking up in the morning with my three year old and having that time to, ha- to have breakfast with him and listening to, um, like old school hip hop, <laughs> sometimes kids pop version because, you know, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, and we like to have like a dance party. Uh, yeah. That's that really sets up my morning into like a, like a positive, um, like just lightness within the day. And then um, I like meeting with my team. So even if my calendar is full of back to back meetings, I, it energizes me. Um, and it's also really highly rewarding when, when I look back at my day and realize how many things we've accomplished and have actioned that day. And then wrapping up the day with, um, with some, you know, cooking dinner or, uh, or, like waking up my my toddler from his nap, <laughs> like cuddling with him a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, I always try to really end my day so I can I can do bedtime the bedtime routine with him. Mm. That is also very grounding for me as well. And having time at night to, you know, read a book or, you know, engage in mindfulness practice. Um, mm that's always a nice bonus. I think it shouldn't be a bonus, but for me, it's a bonus right now. There's a lot there that I, that I identify with. Um, but I have some questions. Yeah. Uh, 
old school hip hop. Like what era are we talking about? Like what was the decade? Like decades. You're, you're like, the decade. Um, okay. So old school for me is like 2000s. Oh God. That's what I was worried about. <laughs> that's all for me (laughs) yeah yeah uh, you're funny um okay interesting like my age bracket is uh one where like the 2000s don't even seem like they occurred like i remember the 90s and the 2010 the 2000s kind of just um 90s hip-hop is where i start my days Um, okay modern day hip-hop too um my my three-year-old started um singing uh about about damn time from Lizzo mm. uh, by Lizzo, yeah. but the yeah. kids pop version. So, um, because he started saying, uh, adult words, <laughs> um, because he loves that song so much. So we also listen to Lizzo and Beyonce and yeah. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, I can't get into current like rap. Um, it all just sounds the same. It's like, no, 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 no. No, 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 right. no. It's just like yeah. it's all the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Give me some biggie, Tupac. I'm 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 good with it. Oh, that. there you go. Um, <laughs> one thing you mentioned though that like makes me think of like I'm just trying to bring a little bit of our science in the conversation mm-hmm. is how you start your mornings. Um and um behavioral momentum mm-hmm. is like a principle and thing that we talk about in our science and in our application of our science. And it's around um, you know doing these highly preferred activities or uh, behaviors with which are easier to gauge, engage in, to access reinforcement, to build momentum, to maybe more challenging tasks or tasks with which reinforcement is harder to access. Um, and we talk about a lot within like um, working with kids or with clients, but how you start your day and an effective day, behavioral momentum is a really big part of that. Um, and um, my like, and I, was, I was listening to uh, a podcast recently by a Stanford professor, um, Huberman is his last name. And he was talking about the worst thing you can do is like wake up in the morning, turn your phone on and engage in a lot of meaningless behavior on your phone. Um, like scrolling, doing all these things that are accessing dopamine hits, like function as reinforcement for not engaging in anything. Like you're not doing anything to get mm-hmm. these very par- powerful like reinforcers and um, engaging in activity that's like meaningful, productive, forward moving early in the morning is like the best way to start your day. And a dance party with your child seems yeah. like the exact way to do that. Yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I still, I will still have mornings where the first thing I do is like check my phone, you know, check social. And I, I, you're right. Like it is, those days are normally not as fun of a day versus Mm if I'm actually really intentional of, you know, like let's, let's just put, you know, music on to help us wake up too. Like it really does give us the, the energy to wake up um but yeah dance parties in the mornings are the best yeah yeah with that old school 2000s hip-hop oh yeah (laughs) yeah there's a lot of soul (laughs) (laughs) um uh, i like to end the conversation with 
your why. Like, okay. um, we know what a good day is, but you know, work is hard at times, despite your positivity and in your willingness to like lean in, um, work can be hard. Um, and, um, but like what, what's driving you? What, 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 what is the, the motivation that, uh, keeps you going? Well, it's really just being a mom to a three-year-old. Like I, I really want my son to live in a world of just kindness and inclusion and just harmonious coexistence with, with, with Mm -hmm. others. Um, The best way I know how to do that is modeling that and being, you know, like showing, showing my son um, what I, what I do Uh, right now. He's three. So he thinks work is computer. So sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. he would bring his toy uh, computer and he would sit next to me and he would say, mommy, we're working together. And so that's how he associates my work. Um, He doesn't know the context yet, but I think, you know, it's the best way to teach anyone is through actions than words. So um, it's really my mission (laughs) and my biggest aspiration for him to live in a world like that. Um, That's my biggest why. And, you know, Centria really putting in like efforts, specifically you, Timothy, like you, I, I know that you have placed a lot of efforts in really centering compassionate ABA practices and making every effort to drive its mission is really the biggest alignment to my why. Hmm. Well, that means a lot to me. Um, the The way you can help repay me is how to model compassion to my three year olds. Because when you <laughs> when you talk about terrible twos, I think the people who said terrible twos never had a three year old. <laughs> three year olds are more difficult for me. Oh, for sure. He is a three major. Uh, it is. Uh, I have a three year old and a five year old and a thirteen year old and my three year old. Uh, wow. He, he's a he's a Good, fun, energetic, yeah. and strong-headed kid. Yeah. Yes, yes. Katrina, I've really enjoyed the time. Um, I've gotten to learn more about you than uh, than I was expecting, so I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in, in Oregon. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to move to Oregon as well. So thank you for this opportunity, and it it was a lovely chat. Thank you. And that concludes another episode of us telling the stories of our incredible staff and their work to support our powerful mission. Until next week, do wonders.